The following is from the teaching ministry of First Baptist Church of Royal City, Washington. More teaching like this can be found at graceteaching.net or searching Grace-Oriented Teaching wherever you get your podcasts. Now, here is our speaker. Okay, let's have a word of prayer. Father, we're thankful for this day. You've given us opportunities. We can meet those opportunities or we can steer clear. We can become uh, so focused on our own selves that we miss those. We trust that tonight as we're here, that this is one of those opportunities you've planned for us and that we would uh, take advantage of that. And that's not just about learning something in the Bible study, but how we might contribute or you might use us to play a part in bringing some clarity or asking a question that is helpful and just interacting with one another because the body of Christ, of course, is your design, your plan in love between members is also your plan. It's a command of your son. And we thank you for the opportunity to be involved in these ways and for those that you brought out tonight. Amen. Okay, so tonight, to kind of start this off, I want to kind of create... Timeline, we've looked at this timeline many, many times over the years. We're going to start back here, I'm going to put the cross here. We're going to put the fact that, uh, let's just go, here's a cross and uh, what is this? Rapture. Rapture. Why is it a hook? Because Jesus is coming down and then we're going to go up. That's right. And then, what's that? The return of Christ is going to split. That's right. Jesus Christ is physically going to return. His feet are going to touch the Mount of Olives, and the Mount of Olives is going to be split. We're looking east. <laughs> I say that because the, because the fault line is north-south, but that mountain is going to split east to west. Uh, God, Christ is going to split it contrary to the, because that's the way he, he works. He doesn't have to use nature. He works contrary to nature. Yeah, he's going to split it east. This fault, it's, the split's going to run east to west so that it's going to be divided to the north and south. And what that's going to do is it's going to cause water from Jerusalem to flow out, flow over to the Jordan and down into the Dead Sea and make the Dead Sea not dead anymore. So, this is where we are. We are between the cross and the rapture. This is the church, the body of Christ. This is, for lack, oh, now I can't even think. For lack of a better term, this is what we're going to call the tribulation period. There's more beyond this. It is. That's just a lot to write. So I cheated by writing trip because it's a lot of words to write. But it is the it is the seventieth week of Daniel. Okay. Um, this is the time we are. Jesus is speaking right here just before the cross and literally before the cross because this is the night that he's going to be betrayed, right? He's going to be betrayed by the next evening, 24 hours from the time he's speaking with his disciples. His body is going to be laying in a tomb outside Jerusalem. Okay? Just to put this in perspective. Everybody got that? Within 20 or 24 hours from the time he's talking to these guys in John 13 through 17, 
He's going to be crucified and his body's going to be laying in a tomb. That's how close all of this is. And he is talking about this time here. The rest of his earthly ministry. Here's Jesus coming down here to Bethlehem and he lives this earthly life. And this stuff, what we read in, the mo in most of Matthew through John, most of what's going on in Matthew through John is about Israel and it's about this time and it's about this time out here. Most of what he says during his earthly ministry has nothing to do directly with us. And one of the reasons, just as an aside, one of the reasons we have those Gospels, in fact, Peggy was asking me that today when we were out for our walk, she goes, review with me again why we have four Gospels. And so we are talking about, not why we have four Gospels, the writers of the Gospels, that's what we got talking about. But we have these four Gospels, and the reason for it is those Gospels if you just had the Old Testament and now we got the church, if you didn't have the Gospels, you'd go, what happened with the Old Testament? What happened to those promises that God was making to Israel all that time? Did those just get trashed? And you know why that's important? Because most of the church in the world today thinks that that's exactly what happened. They think Israel has basically been dumped in God's, God's trash barrel and now the church is the new Israel, and we've taken over a spiritual, allegorized version of God's promises. Got that? That's what the majority of the church in the world, it's called, and people like me call it replacement theology. Those people don't call it that. They just think, well, that's what it is. We're the new Israel. We took over. They lost their promises. And then some of them say, well, the believers in Israel, they're with their, us too. But they really think that the Old Testament has been changed into this. And they don't understand this is something completely different than this. And completely different than this, because this is technically, what did we have before, well, during the time that Christ came down, but all the way back to Sinai? The law, the law. This was all, yeah. This was all the law. The law was from Sinai to the time of the cross. This from the rapture to here, this is also law. This is actually the last seven years of the law. There's seven years of judgment that have to be completed. Now where we are in this at the end of John 13 and the first part of John 14 is Jesus is telling his disciples, I'm going away and you can't come with me right now. Do you imagine what that's been like? You've been following him around for the better part of three years and here you're sitting and you're having this meal together. You know, they're eating Passover. And this, here your leader says, guess what? I'm leaving and you guys can't come. They'd all be going, what? Wait a second. And they all get upset and they're excited. Like, I don't get this. Why can't we come with you? And that's exactly, we saw that last week. Exactly. But most of what we have left in the in this upper room discourse here in this upstairs talk, most of this is going to be predicated on the fact that Jesus is gone. And he's going to say certain things. Like over in John 16, Jesus says, it's better for you that I go away. If I don't go away, the comforter won't come. As being the Holy Spirit, who we haven't got to that part. So just trying to put this a timeline. This is a timeline. This is where we are. We hope. We hope we're right out here. We hope that we're just at the cusp of the, of the rapture. But we don't know. The believers in the first century, Paul, when he wrote, he says, those of us that are living up under the presence of the Lord. So Paul expected the rapture to happen while he was still breathing the air. 
Okay? So, with that. With that, did you have a question? or No. Okay. Let's go to John. Let's go to John 13, the end of the chapter. We're going to read this into where we've been and move into this next section here. Took a little bit longer for introduction there. Hopefully that wasn't too much. But I want you to go with me to verse 33. It says, My little children, yet a little while I'm with you, and you will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, where I go, you are not able to come. I say the same thing to you now. I'm going to skip over 34 and 35. That's the new commandment, which we already talked about. Verse 36, and Simon Peter says to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus said, where I go, you're not able to come now or follow now, but you will follow later. We're going to have to answer that question. How are they going to follow later? And Peter says to him, why am I not able to follow you, Lord? I'll lay down my life for you. Jesus answers, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, before the cock crows, you, uh, the, excuse me, the cock will not crow, absolutely will not crow, excuse me, until you deny me three times. Then verse 1 of chapter 14, do not let your heart be troubled, agitated, upset. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many places to abide or to rest. And if this were not so, I would have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you and if I go and prepare a place for you, I am coming again, and I will receive you to myself, so that where I am, you may be also. And where I go, you know the way. And of course, then there's going to be an, an exchange here uh, that we'll come back and talk about in a little bit. Last week, we left off there in, in verse 1 of chapter 14, where he says, uh, Do not let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. They were to look... These, none of these disciples had a question about God, did they? They all agreed in who God was. What else did they have to agree about Jesus Christ to be a believer? They had to believe he was God. So did these 11 all believe that he was God? The 11 did, yes. Did they, did, well, let's ask this. Do you all know that God is in charge of your life? Do you all believe that? But we don't always act that way. That's right. Do we get a little agitated and upset sometimes when things seem to be going sideways on us? Oh, yeah. And we sit and we fall on the floor. We, well, like we were saying Sunday, we have, we have temper tantrums, right? We were talking about that. We lay on the floor and pout and all that kind of stuff. But, uh, yeah, we get agitated. We get upset. We let it, even though we'd go, if somebody says, you know, don't you believe God really cares and he's really in control? And we go, yeah, I just don't feel like it right now. <laughs> well, his disciples are there. And think about this. You and I understand this stuff. We've learned this stuff. These disciples, they haven't learned any of this yet. They're just, they're getting intro to Christianity 101. That's what they're getting here. The earthly ministry of Jesus has not been intro to Christianity. It's been, this is Judaism, <laughs> 305, okay, right? You all know 305, that means this is your third year in this stuff. Man, you're, you moved on beyond introduction and introductory classes. That's what the Gospels are. And if you don't understand the Old Testament and Judaism, you don't understand the rest of the Gospels and what's going on. But this, 
You can read the rest of the Gospels and you're going to be hard-pressed to find any link to this in the Old Testament because this is new stuff. He's telling them new things. In fact, um, just listen to one of my friends say this just yesterday. Let's go to chapter 16. Keep your finger there and just flip to chapter 16 for a minute. I was listening to a friend of mine teach a class uh, yesterday afternoon. And, and it says, um, verse 13 of chapter 16, or no, chapter, verse 12, excuse me, 16, 12. Yet many things I have to say to you, but you're not able to bear them. They're a heavy load and you don't have the strength to shoulder that heavy load. But when he, that is the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. And we're, we don't need to go on and develop the rest of it. But it's just a good example as you go back over to chapter 14 that Jesus acknowledges there's a lot of stuff I'm telling you. But some of it right now, it's, it's, it's too much for you guys to handle. If I unloaded this on you right now, you guys would be overwhelmed. Okay. And... Uh, we could probably talk, we could spend the whole evening with you guys talking, giving me examples of stuff that would have been overwhelming for those disciples to hear. Well, to tell them that the Jews and Gentiles are going to be equal and Jews are going to quit being Jews and Gentiles are going to stop being Gentiles and we're going to be the body of Christ, something new. You want to know that that was not a problem in the early church? It was a horrible problem for them because the Jews didn't want to give up their identity and they didn't want to stop and think that these Gentiles are now on equal footing with them. It was a big problem. It's a problem in Galatians. It's a problem in Ephesians. It's a problem in Romans. I think in, yeah, a little bit of the problem in 1 Corinthians. So yeah, it's a, it's a big problem. So he says here in, in uh, verse 2 now, in my father's house, there are many places to abide. Where's, where's the father's house when it says in my father's house? What's that a reference? What? This is 14.2. And by the way, I taught this with one of our Bible studies. We went over this a couple years ago. And one of our good friends, I'd name his name, but I don't want to embarrass him. He goes, yeah, and we're going to eat all the food we want and play football in the front yard. Remember that? Remember that song from, I don't know, 15 years ago or 20 years ago? Yeah, yeah. I just say, if we really did play football out there in heaven, there'd be a little bit of a fight. Because do you play NFL football or do you play football like most of the world plays oh football? <laughs> right? You know what I'm talking about? Most of the world football soccer. And they outnumber the United States. Yeah, that's right. Anyway. That's right. Anyway, the father's house... The Father's house is bigger than the universe. I think we all understand that. Um, and I'm not. We, we could go over to the book of Isaiah and we could look at some statements over there in Isaiah that kind of look at all of the. Well, let's just take a quick gander. Okay, I'm sorry. Isaiah 66. This isn't in my notes, but we'll do this one because this is maybe helpful. Isaiah 66. Sixty-six one. Somebody want to read Isaiah sixty-six one for us? Thus saith the Lord: Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where then is my where is a house you could build for me, and where is a place that I may rest? So, if you look at heaven as God's throne and the earth as His footstool, what does that kind of say about all of the this all of this universe? It is, it's His house. 
Yeah, it's it's bigger. So a little building down here, which is just not even a dot in the midst of the universe, our planet is barely a dot in the midst of the universe. Puts it in perspective, you know. So think about that. Think of God sitting up there in heaven. He's sitting on his throne. His feet are down here resting on the earth. It just kind of... And does God literally have feet that are really re literally resting on the earth? No, but it's designed to give us a mental picture to say God's this big and all of this is his house. All of this is what he's inhabiting, okay? He's everywhere. There's not a place in this. Not only that, but just visually to put this, if this is the universe, let's put the earth over here on the side. We don't know that that's where it is, but let's say it's there. This is out here, outside of the known universe, is God's throne. He's sitting up there. His feet are resting up there, sitting on his throne. Here's God sitting on his throne. I have to leave this till Sunday so Josh can be impressed with my drawing. Yeah. <laughs> but he's resting on this. But the significance of this is he's outside of all of that. In fact, turn, turn over to uh, Ephesians chapter 1. And this isn't just a dry theological exercise. This is something that really helps put God in perspective for us. You know, when we're talking, you believe in God, believe also in me. Well, these are the things you need to really think about. In, in Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 18, it says, and, to, and uh, to enlighten the eyes of your heart so that you might know what is the hope of the calling, what is the riches of the glory of his inheritance among the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness. Here it is. The greatness of his power that is into us. This is his, God's power in you as a believer, in you, the ones that are believing, according to the inworking, that is God is personally working, there's the idea, the inworking of his, the might of his strength, which he, so he's going to give you a, a, an example of this power that's working in you, which he worked in Christ, raising him out from the dead and seating him in his right hand in the heavenlies, far above all rule and authority, power and lordship, and every name that is named not only in this age, but also in the one to come. When Jesus Christ ascended, he didn't just go where created beings are. One of the things he did was he went and ascended someplace that every one of those spirit beings in this world, those that are opposed to him as well as those that are with him, all could see that he went where none of them go. And he was now, he was now also had a human nature. That's right. So just to put it in perspective, if this is the created universe and I set him out there for the sake of this drawing, but just to put this, and I don't know, I don't have a reference point, but God's outside of all that. <laughs> He's beyond the created universe. When I say created universe, we're not talking about the physical stuff. We're talking about all the spirit beings, all the angels and the cherubs. They're all, they all operate within a, this realm. And Christ went beyond that. So you stop and you think, do I have a savior that's pretty powerful? Do I have a savior? When, when Jesus says over there, flip back over to John 14, 1, you believe in God, believe also in me. You gotta remember that you have a savior that when he rose, he's where no one but God is as well as within the universe. And it puts it in perspective for you that, you know what? 
when things get when when things agitate. In fact, we just went over that on Sunday when Sunday when we we're looking at those promises out of Hebrews that relate to the new covenant over there. That one of those promises is He's able to come to our cry for help, and we all say that. But you know, when we're going through trouble and we we don't always believe that I can cry out for help, and He's really going to care or that He can. But He's so powerful that He's out beyond all of this. That is an amazing thing. Remember the illustration I told you? I think I told you on Sunday, you know, about me as a kid being afraid to jump into the pool because I was terrified of water. I'm taking swimming lessons and I cannot pass from, from minnows to whatever the next one up was up there. And my sister that's younger than me, she's already going on. And <laughs> here I am always following my little sister and I can't do that. And finally my dad take my family we go we get in the car we drive down the swim pools and we didn't have a swim pool in our town so we had to go to the next town over and the um, lifeguard was my swim swim instructor and my dad gets in the deep end and my dad says at well he asked the guy he says if he jumps into me will that count because he had to jump in the deep end and i didn't want to jump in the deep end and he said, yeah, he can't jump to you like you're going to catch him. He has to jump in the water, but you can be right there. That was enough. That was enough for me. I had this confidence that my dad wasn't going to let something bad happen to me. Well, you stop and you think about your father as well as your Savior, Jesus Christ, that they care, that they come to your call for help. That's a big deal. And there's a lot of Christians that kind of in theory know that. But when it actually comes down to the rubber meeting the road, we spend all of our time trying to make it happen ourselves rather than trusting him to take care of it if we call, right? Because we believe lies such as God helps those who help themselves. That's a baloney lie. That means a really bad lie, I guess. I don't know. I don't know what a baloney lie is. I guess it means it's really bad. Sorry. Did you, oh, I thought you were asking a question or making a comment. Okay, so verse 2. So in my father's house, we just... Oh, go ahead. Let me write it down and I will look it up after a bit here. What? The timely help verse? That's the, I think it's the last verse of Hebrews 2. I think it's 2 something. What? That might be, yeah. The last verse of Hebrews 2 where he says that it's for a, a timely help and that, remember the word for um, help there is the Greek a verb, um, well, yeah, um, ba'o, it doesn't look like ba'o here, but it's, we, if somebody, if somebody from the, our group here fell in the water and they went, help, we all know what they mean. That's not the verse you're talking about. Oh, um, okay, I'll, I'm going to come back to it. I'm going to have to find it for you afterwards. I was thinking that that was the verse, but that's the verse that he he's able to come to our cry for help, is what well, that verse. It says in four that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Oh, in four sixteen, yeah. I thought there was another one, and I thought it was towards the end of the chapter, but anyway, don't let me. well, I'll have we'll have to come back to that. So let's let's take a look a little bit of how when he's talking about our father's house, something significant that you and I know. Um, 
as Christians. In fact, I'm. Let's just put it this way. Um, I think I think Victor and I were talking about this last week after Bible study or before Bible study because I asked him. I said, "Do you still have that that chart of things that are true about us in Christ that Holland had given him like a week or two before?" I said, "Do you still have that?" He said, "Yeah, he's been working through those." And I said, "Good, good," because I said, "We don't do this in churches today." But if you got saved, if Paul if Paul evangelized and you were one of those people that believed in that first week, before that first week was over, you probably would have known 20 or 30 things that God says about you in Christ sitting with Paul. That's what Paul started with. Those are the things. He wanted you to know who you were in Christ. And one of the reasons I can say that is because when you read Paul, it's all over the place. It's in him. It's in us or in that one, in Christ, in whom. I mean, it's left and right that he's saying these things. It's It's foundational to this so go let's go first over to philippians chapter 3 philippians chapter 3 in the end of the chapter in verse 20 philippians 3 and verse 20 Let's go back up to verse 17. It says, Become imitators of me, my brothers, and watch. Remember, Kevin went over that word watch to look at, the, to scope out, to, to keep a very narrow, focused view. I was thinking of like when Ben talks about going over in Idaho and you're scoping and you see how, how far away do you sometimes can you make out a, a, a bear at a distance when you're scoping? Well, I mean, Okay. But they were this big. Yeah. <laughs> and then you put them on a spotting scope and look there. And he uses a word that we get the word scope in English from. So the idea is you're fixing your gaze. You're looking very focused on something here is what he's looking at. Obviously, they didn't have a scope like we think. But the idea is you're really focusing in. The very reason that hunters and people like that use a scope is to see what am I looking at? What, what, you know, what is this over there? And is this something I want to pursue? And so this is what he's saying. Be imitators of me and scope out or fix your focus on those that are walking as you have us for an example. In other words, when you see other believers that are relating, Paul says, like, I've taught you to relate. He says, if I've done that, he says, then you watch those people and you pay attention to them. You don't just have to pay attention to me. There's other people that do this too. Verse 18. For many are walking, of whom I have often, am t uh, of whom I often am telling to you, and now even I'm saying this weeping that they're enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is ruination. Their God is their belly. Their glory is in their shameful thing. And they set their frame of mind. The very remember Paul tells us in Colossians three, you set you seek out things above, and you set your mind. Same word, set your mind on things above. He says they set their mind on earthly things. In other words, he says, I'm telling you, you find those people that are living right and you put your eye on them. You keep your eye on those people that are actually living like Paul says, like we gave you an example in our life. You watch those people there in your church and you, you keep an eye on them in a good way. And I have to tell you that, Paul says, because there's a, you're going to have a lot of people that are going to be doing it the other way. In fact, I was talking with somebody the other day and we were talking about the Paul statement over in 2 Timothy uh, 4 where he says that there are going to be so many in churches, there are going to be so many teachers that are going to teach bad. He says you can pile them up in heaps. And most people are going to want them. That's what churches want because they, they tickle their ears and they preach and tell them what they want. And he says, 
here, <laughs> there, he says, there's a lot of these guys. So watch out for them. Then he says, they, they set their mind on earthly things. That brings us to verse 20. For our citizenship is in heavens. Down here, the courthouse has my name, has my wife's name written down there at registered voters, residents in this county. Because, well, if I'm, you're going to vote, this is what you have to do. But you know what? From God's point of view, I'm a non-resident. I'm an alien. I am a traveler that is passing through down here. Because my real home, my real citizenship, my real politics are in heavens. From which we are eagerly waiting a Savior, the Lord Jesus. In other words, we're waiting for him to come out of heaven for us. Who will transfigure this humble body. Is this a humble body? Is it a humble body, Peggy? Yeah. She's been dealing with a bad back for the last, well, two days sort of now like this. I'm a humble body. I'm stupid. I had, I've, this is the first time I've worn shorts, you know, since I've did this and I have kids outside going, what happened to your leg? What happened to your leg? You know, anyway, like that. It's a humble body. This is the kind of stuff that happens, right? He says, so it's a humble body and he's going to make it conform to his body of glory according to the inworking of his power by which he subjects all things to himself. So this body's changing. And he's going to make it that it's going to be like his body. We're not only going to be cookie cutters, but we're going to have the kind of body that he has, the kind of body that isn't limited. It's not humble in this way. Now, the reason we come over here is because Jesus says, I'm going away, right? He says, I'm going away. I'm departing. Here he says, our citizenship is there. See, it's where he's departing. In my father's house, what's that? Bigger than this. Our citizenship we need to look at is a citizenship in heavens. We're just traveling through down here. Now, Jesus doesn't flesh this out. The reason we're doing this is because, was, I, well, was it Victor, were you the one I was talking about that Jesus is just planting seeds here? Mm -hmm. This whole upper room, he's just like taking seeds out, poking a hole, sticking it in there, poking a hole and putting another seed. He's going along and he's just kind of presenting seed truth. There's a ton of depth. Our job is to take the word of God and say, this is what he said. This is how it is fleshed out by the New Testament writers afterwards. <clears throat> keep, keep your finger, well, you don't have to keep your finger in Philippians. We're done. Go back over to Ephesians for just a minute, Ephesians 4. And I think I asked you this question well, sometime back. I don't remember how long ago it was. Well, let me find the verse. I, don't, I didn't write this down in my notes. It's in Ephesians 4, and it's since you have been taught... There it is, verse 21. Verse 21. At the end of 4, Ephesians 4 and verse 20, it says, But you have not so learned the Christ, if indeed, or assuming indeed, you have heard him and been taught by him. How did you hear Jesus? And how were you taught by Jesus? I've never seen him. I don't know what his voice sounds like. So how, how did I hear him and how was I taught by him? What? Through Paul. through Paul. And through? The Spirit. What? The Spirit. Through Spirit, yeah. No, Paul's right. Paul's right. That's exactly the direction I'm going. Other believers. But through other believers. Through John. And through Peter. And through James. And through Ben. And through Leslie. I'm picking on teachers down here. People that have taught. Through my wife. Through myself. Through Jim and Josh. Or any of you potentially. 
We just, that was one of the, well, it was an answer to a question that we had last night, but Paul makes a statement over in Hebrews uh, 5, when for the sake of time, you all ought to be teachers. In other words, if you've been paying attention to the teaching of God's word, and somebody, God brings a person across your path, and they've got something that they'd like to ask about, guess what? You don't go, oh, let me find my pastor. He can answer your question. You ought to be able to know something to be able to say, I can't maybe answer that specifically, but this related to this thing, let me explain this. And sometimes that might be of help. Or sometimes it's like, I was joking last night, you can be like Ben Fanning. I just out of the blue, I get a text from him going, where's the verse that says da 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 And I'm like, you know, and Ben might remember the verse a little differently than I, so then I'm trying to think, you know, what that, so you can do that thing. But the thing is, you all ought to be learning the word of God in such a way that if God brings someone across your path, maybe he wants you to be the one to tell them, not to go take them to somebody else to do it necessarily at that moment. So when he says, if indeed you have heard him and been taught by him, yeah, you should. When somebody's standing, teaching you the word of God in a Bible study like this, or if you listen to people on the computer, the phone, I guess, you know, my I'm still old-fashioned computer, I guess. But you know what I'm saying. Whatever it might be, that person ought to be communicating the word of God so clearly and accurately that it's as though you're hearing the voice of Christ. And I realized I don't always do that because sometimes I get in the way, okay? Because Christ probably wouldn't tell a story about his jumping into the deep end of the pool, but that was for my illustrative purposes. So let's go back to John 14. Um, well, wait, no, go to Ephesians 2. You're in Ephesians. Go to Ephesians 2. I just need to look at my notes and see where... We don't need to go back there yet. Ephesians 2. Ephesians chapter 2. And he's, he tells us back up in verse 15 that he's made us all into one new man. And that's how he's made peace. Okay? He's made peace by putting us all together in one new man. That on a practical level is the only way we have peace among believers is as we learn to focus on ourselves together with all these believers. And that's the problem with the Ephesians, is that they've got a functional problem because some of them are Jewish background, some of them are Gentile background, and instead of looking at themselves as united in the body, they see themselves as Jews with special rights and as Gentiles that have been wronged by the Jews. <laughs> and it creates a this instead of a this. Right? They're doing this instead of this, which is what they need to be doing. And they need to focus on what it means to be in the one new man. And so he's made them, them all one. And then he says in verse 19, in connection with this, therefore, you are no longer strangers and aliens. We've got about five of these words in the New Testament that Paul and Peter primarily used to describe us as Christians down here, that on this earth, we are strangers, we are aliens, we are foreigners, we are immigrants, we are travelers on earth from God's point of view. But he says, but you're not that way, he says, with regard to God, because you are joint citizens of the saints and of, well, it'd be God's household, right? God's household. God's household is not an earthly household. It's a different kind of a household. In fact, keep your finger here and flip to chapter 3 for just a second, and I'll show you this. In chapter 3, in verse 15, verse 14 says, I bend my knee to the Father, 
from whom every family in heaven and earth is named. He's not talking about the Orth clan, the Holscher clan. No, he's talking about the clan that is the church, the family that is the church, the family that is Israel. The in other words, Israel is an earthly family. The church is a heavenly family because our citizenship is elsewhere. So go back to over there, flip back over to 19, 219. Therefore, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are joint citizens of the saints of God's household. You are being built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus being the chief cornerstone, the one that laid the square and the plumb, the level for the building in whom all of the building harmoniously joined together. Harmoniously joined together. It is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom also you are being built together into a dwelling place of God by the Spirit. All of us are being put together. Peter gives us the beautiful picture over in 1 Peter 2 that we are all, what does he call us over in 1 Peter 2? Does anybody remember? Being put into this temple? Leslie did this years ago with the building blocks. Or what did they build buildings out of? What? Stones. Okay. It's, he says stones. We're all we're living stones being fitted together. So you think when they built the temple, it was built out of all these stones that had to be hewn and fit so they could fit together. And all of us are. What's this? Isn't that the cornerstone as it goes up it holds up all of the stones? The, the cornerstone, this cornerstone that he's using is was the cornerstone that they laid and it was level and square and everything was squared off and plumbed from that one cornerstone. It, it, yeah, there is a capstone picture too. And I think the capstone might be the one image that's in First Peter, I think. Yes, it is. I think that's the one over there. Maybe I'm wrong, but I'm looking at this. I, I think that this is the one for the corner. I'd have to look it up because you can't tell looking at the Greek word exactly which one it is. But yeah. But think about that. All of us are being put together like stones. That, that's a metaphor. Because one metaphor is that we're a body and we're parts. The other metaphor is that we're a building and we're stones. Right? Okay. Yeah. So in other words, we're a temple that God dwells in. All of us together. God dwells in each of us as a believer, but all of us together are a temple that God dwells in. Not a physical building, but all these believers put together make up the building of God. Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. <clears throat> now, where, if you were a Jew, we're going to go to Hebrews 12, verse 18. Okay? No? Okay. Hebrews 12, 18 um, is where we're going to go. But if you were a Jew, where did you go to worship? Where? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Jerusalem where? Temple. Temple. Jerusalem proper. Jerusalem proper. In in Judah. In Judah, right? Right on the north edge of Judah there. Yeah, this is where they all went. Now the 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 believers, the believers that 
Paul is writing Hebrews to, or the writer of Hebrews, if we go along with Courtney, uh, but you know what I mean. The writer of Hebrews, or Paul, he, as he's writing this, he's writing to Christians who have been ousted from the temple. They've been kicked out. Which you and I would today, we look at it and we go, what's the big deal? But these guys don't really know anything else. Because when he's writing this, the thing that's shocking, we've been over this before, but you go to the book of Acts, those Christians from, from day one at Pentecost all the way up to Acts 21, where are they still going on a regular basis? Temple. To the temple. If they want to talk to God, where are they still going? To the temple. What did you do at the temple? You what'd you say? You sacrificed. And what'd you say? You talked to the priests. And they're still doing that at the temple. I really think a lot of Christians don't read their Bibles with open eyes. That's kind of shocking for us to stop and think about the fact that these Christians are still going to the temple. They're still going to the temple. They're still carrying on with all of this activity. At this point, almost 30 years after Christ died, rose again, and ascended on high, they're still participating in this. Because remember, the temple was never about how you got saved. It was about how you functioned and communicated with God. The temple was all about giving people a place to go and talk to God. Do you worry about finding a place to go and talk to God today? No. No. But they did. See, you understand the truth. you mentioned, though, Tim, I mean, it's easy for us, if you say, just go like, God, but how hard is this? They've been doing law for centuries and centuries and centuries, and they didn't have the modern internet, the World Wide Web, to say, hey, it's been flipped over. It would be, I mean, I, I, I reckon it like synonymous to all of a sudden we start finding out through letters that, hey, we're supposed to go back and, and be under law right now. And so you're supposed to be doing what some of these other religions are like, what are they doing? You're supposed to be doing that. No, are you sure? Hold on. We're under grace. No, no. No, it's changed. I mean, just... That, that would have been hard. Like, it would have been really hard to be a devout Jew and go, give it up. That's right. And we can see the whole picture and go, well, of course you got to give it up. The Lamb of God. We're done. You're done. But Plus, I don't think we should lose sight of the fact that when God gave them the uh, place where they could come to find God, that was a big deal. It was. That he would live in their midst and that they could come to him even though, you know, there was a fence around it and there was a procedure. But they got to come to God. Think about it, though, in the terms of so many places today think that we need to go to a building mm -hmm. to get to God, to some kind of a church building or a temple, and they do not get that, that we're the temple. Yeah. I just think even among real Christians, not just people that call themselves Christian, but even real Christian. I think there's a lot of real Christians that think, you know what, if I've got a real need, you know who I need to talk to? I need to talk to my pastor because he can pray and he, you know, he's got like the, the red hotline to God. Whereas, you know, I have to wait online. Beep, beep, your call will be taken in the order it was received. You know, we don't, you all have equal access. But some people I think really struggle with this or they think we need to go to a place. 
I've told you, like one of the first years we were here, I used to open the doors in the summer because we didn't have, I didn't have any air conditioning in the building. It would just be, oh, so hot. So I'd open them for air to move through. And one day I, I kind of heard a noise out in the auditorium and I kind of leaned back, or I'd lean forward in my chair back then and look out in the auditorium and there's a guy sitting in the back pew and I'm like, oh, what's this all about? And, and I walk and I said, can I help you? And he goes, I just needed to pray. Okay. He says, is it okay that I could come in? I'm, yeah. Yeah, but to me it was just interesting. He wandered in off the street here in Little Royal City, and was like, you know, where do you go pray? You come into a church building. You could pray sitting out on the curb or laying in the dirt, right? You, there's no physical place on this planet. But that's a hard thing, even for Christians or just people in general to think today. They still think that they have to have somebody special pray for them. So with all of that. He comes to 1218 and he's going to say this. For you have not come. That's a perfect tense verb, meaning you have come with the result that you're there to the mountain that is touched blazing with fire, dark and gloom in uh, a storm. And so that's talking about Sinai. Jump down to verse 22. But you have come, perfect tense, to Mount Zion, the city of the living God. The, what's he call it? The heavenly Jerusalem, not the earthly Jerusalem. In other words, what he's saying, you guys, by virtue of being saved, you're in Christ. And by virtue of that, you have already come to the heavenly Jerusalem. You don't need to worry about whether or not you can go back to that temple in the earthly city. You don't need that. Come to the heavenly Jerusalem, to a myriad of angels, to a festive assembly, to the church that's made up of firstborn ones that are, this next word, registered in heavens. You and I may not appreciate that, but that was the illustration I was using about the Grant County Courthouse up there, that I'm a citizen of Grant County from Grant County's perspective in the state of Washington, and my name is registered there as being a resident here. And that was a big deal for them. They carried papers in their world. They carried papers to, tell, to be able to acknowledge where they were from. And so he says, our names have been, perfect tense, written down in the past with the result that they remain written down. I'm registered, as it were, in, in fact, my English translation translates it registered, but it just means it's written down. But I think registered is the idea. In heavens, just like Paul said in Philippians 3, we're citizens of heavens. Well, you know, one thing that goes along with being a citizen of heaven, you're registered in heavens. Your name's written down there. Say that again, what's, what's heavens again? What? Why heavens? Why heavens? Yeah. Because because I don't think we're just a I don't think we're just a re, uh, we're not just of the heaven where we're breathing the air. We're not just a resident in the heaven out there of the starry space. We're not even a, we're we're actually all the way out there in the third heaven where God is. And third heaven is not a Mormon thing. It's Second Corinthians chapter eleven that Christ or that Paul says caught up to the third heaven into paradise. So we're registered of all those. But even in the future, after God destroys these heavens and earth, which he tells us at least three times that he's going to do and create new ones, we're citizens of those heavens out there too. That's always, it's always that we're citizens of heavens. Not citizens technically of the earth. Citizens of heavens. Okay. Did that answer that? And so he says, this is where, and that he says, that's where the church is. So the church's registry is in heavens. Our citizenry, our citizenship, excuse me, is in heavens. 
That's where our names are written down. And then he goes on, he talks about some other things that are involved there. You know, this is really hitting me because, you know, I'm doing the Roman history. Right. And being a citizen of Rome is a really good deal, and it afforded you what they called the Latin Rite, and everybody wanted it. And you could buy it, and Paul was it by uh, birth, and yet look what he's talking about. Yeah. And you know, in those of you that are in church here a lot, I you've heard me say this, and I might sound like I get like a broken record on this topic too sometimes. But you know what? If you really remembered who you were in Christ and where your citizenship is, all the crazy stuff that goes on in this world around us, we would be able to kind of let go of it and not worry so much. But a lot of times we worry so much because we kind of focus way too much. Well, we're kind of, we can be like those people over in Philippians 3 that set their mind on earthly things and we're so focused on this that we forget where our real citizenship is. Okay. And uh, and I think about that. I don't know, you know, I tell you, I every morning while I'm eating my oatmeal, I sit and I look at Google News and right now every morning, well now it's, now the Ukrainian war has been trumped by the fact that they're, you know, uh, questioning a, a, a um, Supreme Court judge candidate. So that's, you know, the top story has been for the last couple of days in there. But it is, I, you know, you look at that and every day, to be honest, this is I, every day I'm looking, hoping that something has changed in a good way with regard to the Ukrainian war, <laughs> that it's ended, that they've given up on this. And I mean, because there's people that I've prayed for, people that I've known as believers that have served and worked over there in Ukraine. And you think about those people are over there catching this. But that's happened the history of the world, right? That there have been Christians that have gotten caught in the crossfire of wars between nations. And God never says that we're free of it. One last passage on this, and that's in Revelation 3. Revelation chapter 3. When he writes this in verse 7, this is written to the, let's just read all through this. This is, this is a really good uh, short letter to read here. Verse 8, <coughs> 7, pardon me. <laughs> and to the messenger of the church in Philadelphia write, these are the words of the Holy One, the true one, the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Look, I've set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have just a little power, and yet you have guarded my word, and you have not denied my name. So I will make those from the synagogue of Satan, those who say they are Jews, but they're not, they're lying. I'll make them come down, bow down before your feet, and they will know that I have loved you, because you have kept or guarded the word about my patience. And I will keep you from the hour of temptation that is coming on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I'm coming soon. You hold fast what you have so that no one seizes your crown. If you are then a, a winner, a victor, which all of it, if you're a believer in Christ, the same writer of this, uh, this is Jesus dictating this to John, but John tells us what a victor is over in 1 John 5. It's one that's believed in Christ, he tells us. He says, I will make him a pillar in the temple. Remember, we just looked at that over in Ephesians 2, that we're part of the temple of God. Here he says, you're going to be a pillar in the temple of God. You will never go out of it. I will write on you, now notice what he's going to write on. This is Jesus Christ saying, I will write on you the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, 
the new Jerusalem that come down out of heaven from my God and my own name. Let anyone who hears or has ears, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. In other words, this isn't just to the church of Philadelphia. This is to any church that listens, any church that might find themselves in those similar situations. And that's loaded and we could spend two or three weeks just fleshing out this letter because it's so big. But anyway, the main point I wanted to get to is down there in verse 12 when he's making his promises, he says in there, I'll write on you the name of my God. Remember, this is Jesus Christ speaking. So from from the realm of his human humanity, the Father is God in the realm of his humanity. He's not, on, as, as God, they're equal. But in the realm of his human nature, he has one that he answers to. In the Gospel of John, remember all the times we saw that came to do my Father's will, came to do my Father's will, came to do my Father's will. See? So he says, and the name of the... Yeah. The New Jerusalem. Why does he... Why does he write the name of the city on us? Citizenry. What? Your citizenry. Your citizenry. This is your residence. This is where you belong. If you've never subbed or taught in the, I think, kindergarten, I don't know if they do it beyond kindergarten, but I remember doing kindergarten many years ago. I didn't last. It didn't last very long subbing in kindergarten, but I probably subbed three or four or five times in years past. But the kids, when they got to the buses, the kindergartners all had little lanyards of yarn back then. Now I'm sure they have fancy lanyards. Had a little laminated tag, had the kids' picture on it, said what classroom they belonged to and what bus they got on. You know why? In case that little kid got lost and wandered away and they had a sub that's walking him to the bus going, hey, how are you doing, Mr. So-and-so? We're talking like this. And meanwhile, some little kindergartner wandered off this way and they go, where are you supposed to I don't know where I'm going. They could look, oh, you're part of Mrs. So-and-so's class. You ride bus eight. And it's got all the, this is what, I don't think that that's what we're doing. I don't think he's worried about us getting lost. But the point is he's saying, this is where your home is. Just, just look at the tag that your mom sewed in the back of your shirt when you went to camp. Yep, that's mine. This is where I go. You got the <laughs> And he knows us. And he knows us. But I think sometimes we need to remember where we belong. And so we've got these names, he says, that are going to be written on us because it's reminding us who we belong to. We belong to him. We belong on the New Jerusalem. And we belong to the Son. That's a really big deal for us to understand. We're his. Any of you ever watched Toy Story? You've all watched Toy Story. Oh, yeah. Andy. Andy. Andy, that's right. Woody's got that on the bottom of his boot. Andy. He's Andy's toy. <laughs> you know, and if you're a sentimental person like me, I remember going to my girl with my girls. We went to see that on Friday after Thanksgiving with my uncle and his and his kids. They were all about the same age. We got late, so we got the front seat on the big screen, Toy Story like this. I thought it was great, and my wife hated that. <laughs> she liked the movie, but she didn't like looking up. I thought it was great. But I could still remember that thing when Buzz gets Andy's name written on his foot. And I'm sitting there in the sentimental, I'm like, oh, and a little tear going. <laughs> Your daughter's going, what's the matter, Daddy? No, I'm fine, I'm fine. <laughs> But there is a big deal, isn't it? That you belong to somebody. And it's not just somebody. It's the God of the universe. It's the Savior, the Lord of the universe. And this is your city. And so we go back and tie this. Oh, yes, please. In Revelation 22, it says that God 
No, that they'll be in us. Well, it says we're going to be pillars in the temple. I just can't quite wrap my head around that. Let's, let's picture it like this. Father, Son, they constitute the temple. Oh, are we? They are the Put several million believers... I don't know how many. How many believers are, have they been in 2,000 two centuries of the church? I don't know. All those believers surrounding the Father and the Son, they're the temple. We're pillars in that temple. You're going to come up to the Father and the Son in all their brightness, and here's all these believers that are part of the body of Christ, the church, that are surrounding them. And the promise that Jesus makes in 1 Thessalonians 4 and is repeated here in Revelation 3 is that once that happens, and I, I was reading from my English, not the Greek. I think, I think the English is wrong. God never goes out of this temple. God never departs. That was a big deal because if you were Jewish, you knew that God had left the temple in the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. This temple that is all of us together, there, they never leave. We don't leave that. They don't leave it. We are always going to be together, all of us believers. And I don't think, don't picture it that we're all crammed together and I'm right smashed up against Jeremy and he's smashed against Gary and we're all like, eh, we're all, no. He doesn't give hall passes. Did he say it again? He doesn't give hall passes. No. <laughs> no. no. So, so it's a temple. So Leslie's question is a good temple. Or is a good question. Leslie's question is a good question. They constitute the fact that this is a temple because they're present there. It's just a building if they're not present. It's just a structure. It's a temple because they dwell there. The tent that, that Moses and everybody built in the wilderness would have just been a tent if God never came down to it. The temple that Solomon built, if God hadn't come down and that glory filled it in the smoke, it would have just been a building. And we'd just be a gathering of people if he weren't all among us. That's what constitutes it a temple, is their presence there. And so as we close, just going back to what we're looking at, let's go back to Romans, John, pardon me. I was in Romans, my brain just glitched there. John 14. You have a question? Yes, about, um, you know, who is the church? Is Jesus the church? We the church. We are the church. We are the church. Christ is the head. Not just the body. Yeah, yeah, the body. And the church. Not I mean, not like a not just a figure, but he's over it. Mm -hmm. um, and this picture, Tim, I think you're drawing the new Jerusalem, yeah? Yeah. That's Heaven, yeah. the heavenly Jerusalem. Right. So I mean just kind of context behind that. That is that it talks about it in the scripture, like some dimensions and it's such. It's a real place. It's a, it's a real place. It's a real uh, structure. It's not forever though, so we need to be careful. This is not an eternal, uh, in the sense that, well, I, I don't know how long it, it's there over the little kingdom. Mm -hmm. 
with Father and Son and believers. And I always thought, Tim... And it, and it will be in eternity, too, because you see it coming down out of heaven at the beginning of Genesis or uh, Revelation 21 in, e in eternity. Yeah. However, I'm just piecing some of these things together. So as this celestial news Jerusalem hovers somewhere up above the earth, and at something, what is it, 1,500 miles on its base? Mm hmm which is massive. You know, there's diameter being, what, 6,000 miles? Pretty big, but... Yeah. I mean, so it's got, a, it's got a square base, but it comes up to a triangle, whatever that mathematical... And we don't know that. It could be a square, it could be a sphere. Those are the things that match the way it, yeah, it, it gives its dimensions. So. Okay. But I guess what I always thought, right, is believers have a body I guess I didn't look at it like that in my mind's eye where, you know, they're like hovering over the top of this. Look at like a, a place that God is there, he's dwelling there, he's making resident there, and the, the believers are present, but... You know, like you say, we're not just like, oh, okay, we're already shuffling to. I mean, I, I don't know what all the activity is going to be. This isn't heaven, 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 as I think of futuristic. Um, but I guess I kind of looked at it like a housing, not a housing development, <laughs> but housing. A place that's prepared. It's a big, big house. Yeah. Lots of it's, it's a big, big house. Maybe there's a uh, yeah. Anyways, that's I guess that picture. I, I hadn't thought it like that. Will we yeah. sleep in heaven? I don't think we're gonna need to sleep in no, heaven. I don't need to sleep. You, you can if you want. I guess you know. I mean, can I choose what is all there? I just those are questions I cannot answer. <laughs> it's hard to answer that. I mean, it's yeah, what it But yeah. then, new heavens, new earth. After this, when I was reading in my talk to the Bible for my reading time yesterday about God's promise to never flood the earth again in Genesis. But he is going to take it out by fire. Mm -hmm. You know, he won't flood it again. Mm -hmm. But then, new heavens, new earth, out into what I consider eternity. Um, and that gets a little tricky. Like, right? That is like, what are we, what are we doing? Are we, because the new earth is going to be different. I don't think Mr. Orr's going to be out doing some of my pastimes. Want to be a PE teacher? Or a hunter? Yeah. That's your, one of your pastimes, right? You know, just whatever you enjoy. Whatever anybody enjoys. Mm -hmm. uh, and again, I don't, it's not going to be a killjoy. It's going to be good. It's just hard to... It's hard to... The, the mountains are made low. The water's different. It's all different. Mm -hmm. uh, is it like Eden? I don't know. I don't have to know, but... Well, when you talk about the mountains made low, that's talking about the earth, isn't it? Earth during yeah. the millennial kingdom, yeah. 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 Oh, sorry. Okay. Yeah. And then new, okay, and then new heavens, new earth. What's that earth look like? Yeah, you're right. I'm, the I'm only thing we know is... is yeah. The only thing we know with that earth is it says there's no more sea. Yeah, that's... that's and I, I Yeah, and I don't... So I don't know the yeah. significance of that, but... And 
you know, it says the New Jerusalem has a street and it has a throne and a river of water coming out of it. We do know that. And Are we talking about this guy? Huh? New Jerusalem? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that there's a tree of life in the either side of the river that grows like this and it has 12 kinds of fruit and that there's no night there. So we do have that information. For but it guy. doesn't really tell yeah. us all the details because I think if it did, we'd all be dying to kill ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't heard it say that way. I mean, seriously. No more no, tears, no more, you know. It's a good point, Leslie. When we die. No, I, when I when I picture that's just in my mind the way I picture this. I've got a you know I've got a book upstairs and that guy is he's drawn a picture how he thinks is and it's got all kinds of buildings and streets and such on there. But the thing is, out there in eternity, what am I going to need a little house to live in for? Because I right now what I what's the reason you live, where, live in a house? Shelter, shelter. shelter. to protect yes. you from the elements to keep you, mm -hmm. you know. And, and kind of maybe to protect your stuff or something like that. But out there in eternity, when you're in a glorified body, what, what, what are you going to need a shelter for? And why would you want to go someplace and shut a door and be inside and not be in the presence of the Father and the Son? But what yeah. use does God have for a city? What? What use does God have for a city? It, I think the city is a reference point for us because it's going to be a point at which people are coming and going according to the Old Testament and the New Testament both. So there are going to be people that will be coming and going there, not us, but other people. Going to where, from where, from what? From, from Earth to the New Jerusalem. There will be people, and Jesus, Jesus predicted that, and Jacob saw a vision of it, and you have it recorded over in the Minor Prophets that you're going to have. I think it's Isaiah 66, isn't it? It might be. Um, <laughs> well, that, and that's, that's kind of what he saw, was he saw a ladder of angels going up and down from earth up there to, to yeah, up there to heaven, up there to the, to the New Jerusalem. And, uh, but this is, this, is, this is the point of all this that we're kind of trying to go over when Jesus says, there's a lot of places to dwell in my father's house. Well, but it, it's not all through the end of the chapter because there's actually a break in the action in the middle of this, but that's okay. That's, But yeah, verse 17, For behold, I create new heavens and new earth. The former things will not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness, and I will also rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. Um, which is not a thing true today. And there will and there will no longer be heard in here the voice of weeping and the sound of crying. And there will no longer be in her the infant of a few days or an old man who does not live out his days. But he switches over here. He kind of switches from talking about what he's creating in the future to going back to kind of talking about life during this part of the kingdom. Because uh, we've talked about that. There is, you go to Revelation 21 and there's no death or dying out there in the future. And there's still some death and dying when you go to verse 20 because there will be death and dying during the millennial kingdom because there's going to be people that aren't going to obey. There's going to be people that are not where God wants them to. They're not, they're not believers.
did we kick a hornet's nest by or open a can of worms with this? Mm -hmm. Hopefully. But yeah, the reason we went over all this is because, and just coming back to this now, kind of we'll close this. And if you've got some other questions, we'll, we'll handle this here. But, um, but he says, there's a lot of places to abide in my father's house. But he says, but I'm going to go prepare a place for you. In other words, I'm not, we're not putting you up in one of the places that already is in my father's house. We're not going to go out and live on Jupiter. Or as one of my friends who used to go to church here many years ago and has passed away, I'm going to go out and I'm going to live out, out on a planet around Alpha Centauri. Centauri. Centauri, whatever it is. Anyway, however, you say it. however you say it. We're not going to do that. He's going to prepare a place for us where we're citizens of heavens. And this is the place that he has prepared for us. This is the place that we are going to be going to. And we will be there. The earth, however, is going to be the place that he prepares for Israel and the family of Abraham. And he says that in Romans 4, that Abraham is heir of a world. We, on the other hand, this is what we, this is part of our future inheritance. And Jesus is saying as much, I'm going to go get a place for you. That's a really interesting thing to think about. There's lots of places. But I'm going to go get one ready for you. I'm not getting one of those places ready. I'm getting a place ready for collectively you not one for each of you but one for all of you okay is that a lot to chew on point is if we stop and think about this we're going to come back we're going to pick up the last key parts of this statement here which is about his return for us to complete all of this. We'll come back and look at that. But our point here at this time is to say, we have, a, we are, he left us behind. He's going to say that in John 17. He's left us behind. But we have a future. We have a future that's very different from where we are right now. And that's a really big deal for us. And, well, Ben did this Ben did this a few years ago when he did a study on the rapture and one of the things that he pointed out is there's a lot of people that say prophecy isn't a very practical truth but you know the problem with that is the New Testament writers expect they felt and viewed prophecy as very practical because it puts your life in perspective down here and it helps us to keep our heads up looking out there to something that is different that God has planned ahead rather than just setting your mind on the things on this earth. And with that, we'll end that part of this.